who would win <laughs> in a fight to the death? Anaconda versus snakes, but they're on a plane. Oh, oh no. <laughs> keep in mind these snakes have a plane <laughs> anaconda's big but it doesn't have a plane <laughs> so oh. who would win <laughs> uh is samuel L. jackson on the plane yes <laughs> okay <laughs> that's the other thing <laughs> and it, I, but he doesn't like these mother effing yeah, snakes on this mother effing plane they would just team up right <laughs> The anaconda would team up with Samuel L. Jackson to take down the plane full of snakes. Because you're describing, like, the greatest movie ever. <laughs> I think the anaconda would win. I mean, after seeing really? it, actually, it just tears apart that boat, man. It can it's just tear true. apart oh, an airplane. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> Assuming that was actually an anaconda tearing apart that boat and not, like, just the wrath of God. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> the anaconda itself may be the wrath of God. Yeah. <laughs> or or the devil. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, well, that leads right into my theory. What? You have a theory? Hello and welcome to the Popcorn Isn't Real. I'm Leif Eric. I'm here with my brother Torvald, and hey, today we're talking about, if you haven't guessed yet, the movie Anaconda. And, surprise, we're also talking about a movie called Holes, which I'm sure wow. many people remember fondly. What do these two movies have in common? Well, we're going to get into that. Anaconda is a 1997 film directed by Luis Yosa, written by Hans Bauer, Jack Epps Jr., and Jim Cash. Now, Holes is a 2003 film directed by Andrew Davis, who also directed The Fugitive and Chain Reaction. So I, I just want to be clear. You're talking about Anaconda, the PG-13 horror movie. <laughs> yes, And yes. Uh -huh. Holes, the 2003, like, Disney, I would call it, like, a basically a masterpiece. I think it's amazing. Based on a book, a novel by Lewis Sacker. Yes. Greatest film adaptation ever made, probably. <laughs> right. So, so what's the theory that ties these two things together? Well, we're actually going to be talking about two different theories, but they're somewhat related. So my theory just for Anaconda is that the snake in Anaconda is not a normal snake. It is actually an evil demon spirit. And Cerrone knows how to summon it, and Cerrone may also kind of worship it. I mean, that one I can easily buy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, no, I kind of. so clear. <laughs> I think obviously that that is the case. <laughs> Anyone who's seen this movie, I think, would come out of it thinking that's just the plot <laughs> yeah <laughs> to be clear i love anaconda oh yeah <laughs> it's a <no>. great movie <laughs> it's a really fun movie very fun my other theory that ties this into the whole universe is that Cerrone from anaconda played by john voight is actually not from south america which should be obvious <laughs> and his real name is marion Sevillo. After he survives the movie Anaconda, he moved back to the U.S. and shortens his name from Cerrone to Sir, just going by oh. Mr. Sir, and acting as the law enforcement at Camp Green Lake in Holes. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So just to be clear, you think Cerrone, the main bad guy of Anaconda, yeah. who died at the end of Anaconda, <laughs> came back to life to become the kind of secondary villain of Holes, a children's book. Yes. <laughs> that became a movie. That is exactly okay, well, this what is, I this is quite interesting. <laughs> it sounds like this theory has the most to do with Anaconda. You might be disappointed if you came here for the beloved movie Holes, because that's yeah. going to come a little <laughs> later. <laughs> no, we're, we're going to talk about Holes, yeah, but I think yeah. it, would be, it would be relevant for our viewers to you know, kind of go through Anaconda. Like, what, what's it about? Why don't you talk us through it? 
Anaconda is a movie about a documentary film crew looking for the Shirishama people. Is that what they're called? They're looking for an indigenous lost tribe. And uh, they're going to go and film them. And they meet a complete and utter psychopath who wants to sacrifice them to summon an evil snake god. Okay, no, no. This isn't the plot. (laughs) Tell us the... (laughs) I just don't see any other way of... (laughs) They meet this guy named uh, Paul Cerrone who has a plot to use them to lure the anaconda out. He wants to catch it. That's, and that's catch it, it and sell it for millions anaconda. of dollars. Yeah. And uh, the, the crew of the boat kind of gets you know killed off one by one until the end when they manage to break free and they kill the anaconda and they kill Cerrone and the three survivors get out alive. So we actually had the very cool opportunity to do an email interview with Hans Bauer, who wrote the original spec script for Anaconda. He sold the original spec script to Sony in 1994. This is what he says the script was originally going to be. In the dead of a Chicago winter, a 20-something middle-grade biology teacher, Andy Easter, and six young colleagues hatch a plan to spend their summer in Brazil, hoping to reverse their meager fortunes by joining a modern-day gold rush on a tributary of the mighty Amazon. Disoriented and increasingly isolated, the treasure hunters stray into the remote domain of three colossal snakes, daughter, mother, and grandmother. One by one, under terrifying circumstances, the teachers fall victim to the devastating effects of gold fever and the relentless brutality of the primeval South American jungle. Andy Easter must discover her inner Amazon to avoid becoming prey for the mother of all snakes. You'll notice that a lot of things changed. If you're interested in reading more about the original story for Anaconda, there's actually a novelization called Anaconda, the Writer's Cut, written by Hans Bauer. Now, we also had the opportunity to meet with amazing screenwriter Jack Epps Jr., who rewrote Anaconda with his writing partner Jim Cash into the film we know today. So throughout our conversation, you're going to hear parts of our interview that we did with Jack Epps Jr., amazing screenwriter who has written such great films as Top Gun, Turner and Hooch, Anaconda, Dick Tracy. Uh, We are joined today by Jack Epps Jr., Hi, it's nice to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, my movies and any questions you have. So many of the movies you wrote, I I love them. I love Top Gun. I love Dick Tracy. I love Anaconda. Thank uh, you, because you know part of the fun I- in terms of writing is writing for the audience and want to really have people have a good time, enjoy the movies. I mean, so thank you for saying that because that's really the reason Jim and I, you know, wrote these stories. Now, I don't know if you know too much about our podcast, but what we like to do is to do a lot of research to get into the fan theories behind the movies. Um, we kind of try to get into the alternate readings of the movies and then maybe get the writers or the director's point of view on whether or not these things could be possible or not. So we have some questions about Anaconda. I don't know necessarily how it was received when it released, but I know that we were, of course, kids at the time. I think I was in elementary school. And All the kids loved it. And it was because it was PG-13. Because, like, all the horror movies were rated R. Like, we we couldn't see Jaws. We couldn't see any of those movies. Anaconda was PG-13. And so we all saw it, and we all loved it. Like, it was just such a cool movie. And for, you know, months, even years after, kids would always be talking about Anaconda. 
I just uh, wanted to first start with a general question, just ask about uh, how you became involved in the project of, of Anaconda. The original script was written by Hans Bauer. And mm, yeah. we, I want to give Hans credit for basically coming up with the idea, coming up with the basic journey. Hans broke the ground. He, he created you know, the concept and this idea, and, and I've gotten to know Hans. So it came to us as a production rewrite, which we were known as screenwriters as production. You know, okay, you got a production rewrite? And we're guys to go to you going to production, secret my success, okay. production rewrite. We literally, that was, they had Michael Fox. They had to start on June. We handed the script like in the end of May, they shot it. And then, you know, that was just done. Production rewrite on a sister act. We were uncredited, but we did the production rewrite on that. Uh, Die Hard wow. with a Vengeance production rewrite uncredited. The fun thing about doing that is they're shooting the movie. And don't forget, we had six unproduced screenplays. So that's not fun. So Anaconda was they would they were going to shoot the movie and they needed somebody to do another draft of it. So there is a, a humorous fan theory that the snake in this movie, as it, it's just huge, larger than life, it can break trees and boats. It's a monster. Yeah. There's a theory that it might actually be some sort of demon god with supernatural abilities. Yeah, like it's supernatural. And it's theorized that Sarone, who is very religious in this movie, the character Sarone, may have actually worshipped this snake himself, like the Shirishama people who he, he seems to know. This kind of gives another reason for his devotion to the snake and why he wants to find it and, and, and catch it. What is your reaction to that theory? I love that idea. I wish I'd thought of it. <laughs> I'd love to take credit for it. It's better than what we have in there. Let's say, sure. Awesome. <laughs> a lot of that stuff was added on set. And so when you get an actor like John Voigt, you know, he comes and he brings things to it. And so a lot of that was added with the director on set. And so... The cross of, of uh, the first guy in the first boat at the very beginning who gets um, Danny Trujillo, which I love the fact that Danny Trujillo is in one of my movies. Yeah, oh, yeah. It too. <laughs> it's so cool. I didn't notice it years later. I looked at it. Yes. Wait, that's Danny Trujillo. I know. I, I almost didn't recognize him at first. <laughs> but, you know, he crawls up and there's this cross. And, and so there, the cross is, is predominantly featured. There are a lot of people mm -hmm. wearing crosses on that. So it's, it's, yep. it's very interesting. He's crossing himself at times, you know, mm -hmm. and so – does he Wait. worship the anaconda? I think he does. On location, when they're into it, I think that is the subtext of the movie. I think there's some. I think so too. Uh, yeah. Did he create the demon? I don't think he created it, but I think he's. I think he is. He understands it. I think he thinks like it. In in another lifetime, he may have been one. <laughs> he's coming back to get it and take it with him now, so they can yeah. be one together. Let me just drop some facts on you here, okay? In case you didn't know. Anacondas are among the most ferocious and enormous creatures on Earth, growing in certain cases as long as 40 feet. Unique among snakes, they are not satisfied after eating a victim. They will regurgitate their prey in order to kill and eat again. <laughs> yeah, to kill and eat it again. This fact is so important that it is the opening shot of the movie. <laughs> it's this fact in plain text. <laughs> it's yeah. just letting us know. Sometimes snakes, after eating you, will bring you back to life to kill you again. The implication of they regurgitate their prey in order to kill and eat it again implies that they killed it once They're already. Magical. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> they brought it back to life. I don't know. Why is that in this movie? Why is <laughs> I don't know. First of all, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, and second of all, it don't doesn't do even that. happen. 
I mean, it, there's that one point in this movie you could say it happens, but it doesn't seem no, like they do it to it kill and eat again. Happen. <laughs> and this is one of my 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 evidences. Clearly, they knew Sarone doesn't die really at the end, and they're like, "Well, how are we going to explain that? Well, what if we have it regurgitate him?" Okay, so you're saying that they thought the movie was going to be real successful and they'd bring him back as the villain in the next movie? Yeah, maybe. Or bring him back like five, four years later in a old. kid's novel. <laughs> None of them were involved in. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that anacondas will regurgitate their prey, but it is not to just sadistically kill and eat it again. If threatened, they can't move very fast if they're full of like a giant like elk or antelope or something. So they regurgitate it and then they can run away. Right. But in this case, you have to keep the context of the movie in mind. And this specific anaconda is evil and does just want to kill again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this anaconda is like malevolent. It's not like there aren't a lot of people for it to kill and eat or that it has any trouble doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's, it's it quite is good at that. utterly insatiable. Like, like a normal anaconda will eat one thing and be good for like a month or something like that. This thing can eat like five people and want more, which I think is good evidence for the fact that it's it's not a normal snake. This is some sort of insatiable demon god who requires the lives of humans. I mean, as long as we're talking about this insatiable demon god snake, um, anaconda has like hands down like the best opening of any movie ever <laughs> like, like what a scene like yeah. you've got Danny Trejo just like trembling like his boots shaking in fear yeah. as some unseen force rips his entire boat apart and yeah, shakes just, just, the floor just, like, underneath sh- him shooting nails out of the ground <laughs> like like just, yeah <laughs> I don't even know how that snake is doing that <laughs> and and you know of course the scene ends with young Danny Trejo doing what right. Danny Trejo does best and getting killed. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> Killing that's him. his role. Well, he shoots himself in the head. Terry Flores, played by Jennifer Lopez, is going to direct a documentary about an indigenous tribe. Uh, she's joined by her boyfriend, who you probably don't know as her boyfriend at this point. Dude, Dr. it's Marty McFly. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Kale, played by Eric Stoltz, uh, who was going to be Marty McFly at one point, yes. And to me, Dr. Kale... He looks like a younger version of William Atherton, who's like that guy from Ghostbusters and Real Genius and Die Hard, who plays like these total a-hole characters. Which is why when he walks in, I think this guy's going to be a bad guy. <laughs> like, he's he's going to turn out to be a pompous loser who dies. He does not remind me of that actor, but something about him implies to me that he's going to be the bad guy. And he's like a huge douchebag. And despite but the fact not, that he proves he himself not. so many times to be the only good person on that ship, uh, you keep thinking he's going to be a bad guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. They also have... Danny Rich, I don't know what his job is on the crew, but he is played by Ice Cube. They have Warren Westridge, who is like their Sir Richard Attenborough narration guy. Uh, He's played by Jonathan Hyde. And then they have Gary Dixon, played by Owen Wilson. He's the sound guy. The last person is Denise Kahlberg, played by Carrie Wooher. She is the production manager. And then there's Matteo, the boat captain. Of the entire crew, who... Among them, do you think is the most, is psychotic? The most sociopathic, <laughs> yeah. psychopathic, no, crazy as person? As we'll find out, everyone who sets foot upon this boat turns into an insane person. 
They're crazy, <laughs> dude. All of them, except, I mean, I guess maybe... Um, Dr. Kale and Terry are fairly normal-ish. Ice Cube and then the other guy, Warren Westridge, they like just straight up threaten to murder Wilson. each other. <laughs> and they yeah, okay, uh, yeah Oh, Gary's true. the worst. Owen Wilson I, I obviously... flies off the rails. He's crazier than Cerrone. <laughs> <laughs> Denise isn't that crazy, but she goes a little loopy there toward the end. <laughs> Also, at this point in the movie, at the beginning, you have no idea that uh, Terry and Dr. Kale are dating. You also have no idea that Gary and Denise are dating. Like, no, it kind of seems like Gary that, is like just being a total creep toward her and like yep, hitting on her. I certainly at work. got that impression. <laughs> like, and you kind of expect that because it's like a monster movie, like, oh, he's going to die, you know? And then later on, like, they're clearly dating. And for some reason, it just was not clear. <laughs> and around this time is when Westridge says that he could have Ice Cube killed. And it would probably cost $50 to hire someone to do it. This is where I realized that Cerrone isn't the biggest psychopath on this boat, like, by a long shot. Um, <laughs> like, these two people who were totally amicable up to this point are suddenly like, I'm going to hire someone to kill you because you're playing music. And the other guy is like, I'm going to slit your throat because you're turning off my music. <laughs> Neither of these are normal uh, responses to, right. to what's going on. I mean, to be fair, I don't know what Ice Cube's job is on the crew, but Westridge is like an actor. I mean, so you're saying this is like uh, if you're working on the next Avengers movie and Robert Downey Jr. gets pissed off at you and he's like, I will hire somebody to murder you. <laughs> no, not Robert Downey Jr. Because like he's rich and he could. This is like Sir Richard Attenborough. <laughs> Sir, yeah, Adam, Richard Attenborough. <laughs> like yeah. this old narrative guy being like, I'm going to hire someone to kill you in a British accent. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Okay, so they set sail. They're trying to make their documentary. And pretty much immediately, they run into like a, a, a hitchhiking person in the middle of a river, <laughs> which is pretty cool. So I'll give you a little backstory. So when we came on to the movie, it wasn't this story. It was the Anaconda. Okay. They were all the things. But we just, we felt there was no villain in the piece. Mm-hmm. One of the crew members sort of went crazy and it just it, it just didn't add up. Uh, and their their mission was they were going gold hunting, and we we felt it just didn't have the drive it needed. So I pitched to the studio. I said, "One is let's do it a film production crew. They're shooting a documentary because it gives them purpose. It gives them something yeah. to do. They're on the river, the Amazon, and they do what we tell our kids never to do: don't pick up a stranger on the Amazon <laughs> in the rain." Yeah. And they shot it that way too, and the Amazon in the rain. It's it's great to see uh-huh. it like that. It's yeah. great. We wanted to create a dedicated antagonist, uh, a guy who has he needs the boat. See, there was no re- why does he need the boat? Because he's a he's a he's an anaconda hunter, so he's going to have to steal this boat and trick this. Now, I just want to take a second to appreciate uh, John Voight as an actor and as a person. <laughs> I think Michael Miner put it best when we were talking to him that uh, John Voight is a man who smiles with his eyes and frowns with his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it was the best description of John Voight I've ever heard. He's uh... John Voight knocks it out of the park. He is so oh, creepy so and so evil, and, and, and that uh, you know the way he just looks and snarls and all that stuff. It's it's just. Uh. <laughs> 
<laughs> is he gonna is he gonna is it cannibal too is he gonna eat all these people you don't know he, i would have been surprised if he was having a leg bone there and he's chewing on it i would have been in character <laughs> and i gotta split the lunch can you you got to take it all come on share some of it <laughs> yeah since we're going in that direction, I did have some questions on just Paul Cerrone's backstory. I don't know necessarily how fleshed out his backstory was, but we know from the movie he's a former priest turned snake hunter. Which, by the way, great backstory. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> he gets offended when Restridge implies he's a failed priest. He's like, whoever said I failed? And uh, he also says he's from Paraguay. Is he even telling the truth when he's talking to them? Was he from Paraguay? Was he actually a priest? If he thinks he's not failed, is he still practicing his religion? Is he still worshiping that snake? <laughs> well, I mean, again, I have to I have to say that I wish I had done that stuff, but a lot of those things were added later. Uh, okay. You know, when you get an actor like John Voight, you know, you bring more things to the role. And, and yeah. for us as production rewriters, we did our draft, we handed in, we get hired, we move off to the next show. So, right. you know, there were people who came in and, and added a little little layers and stuff like that, especially with that, that main uh, that main character. I say, yes, he was a priest. Yes, he did go through the priesthood. You know, there's evil in the world and he realizes he is evil. <laughs> so okay. you know, he's on the other side. I mean, that's that's just how I see it. You know, but I think it's good work because it gives him more depth. He was more on our story, uh, a guy looking to make a buck. And this added another layer to it which I liked. Yeah. It makes him so overtly sinister because it's not every day you're introduced to a bad guy who's clearly the bad guy. He's clearly the villain. And he introduces himself as a priest. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> he's also blessing people at times and doing all that crazy. Yep, he's yeah. doing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so Sarone tells them that the Shirishama people worship the giant snakes as gods. And then he tells them of a legend they passed down of a journey to a sacred lake. Now, I just want to say that according to my theory, Cerrone, after all this happens, takes a journey to a sacred lake. He goes to Camp oh, Green Lake, which is a lake right. that is like blessed and cursed and known to like break curses and stuff like that. So I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> You're saying Cerrone is some kind of like mystic who worships this demon snake and can like summon it with a small ritual. He does help them. He does save Owen Wilson's life. Gary and Denise go out to like they, they leave the boat and they're going to listen to jungle sounds. Right. Um, they're, they're just they're gonna record recording B-roll stuff, yeah. right? And they decide this is a good chance to make out, which it kind of is because they're finally away from all the psychopaths on the boat. It's never a good time to make out in the middle of the Amazon jungle at night. Well, yeah, and in a <laughs> horror movie. But um, they're, they're going to make out. And then you see like something's watching them and, it, you know, it starts to get all tense and, you know, a jump scare is coming. And then the jump scare comes. And it's just a pig that jumps out. But I do have to say about the boar. When I was in, I think, I think high school, they had an actual National Geographic photographer come and talk to us. And this guy had some like insane stories. He's the photographer who I think photographed that famous National Ge Geographic picture of the macaws flying by. Wow. And that's pretty cool. He had some just like really insane stories, but one had to do with boars. And he said like the most dangerous thing in the Amazon is not a jaguar, it's boars. And when I was out there, my guides were saying like, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't who cares about jaguars? Like if we hear boars coming, we are just going to get you up a tree 
And then we just wait until they're gone. And he said that he met a, one of his guides was like basically missing his buttocks um, because oh, no. a stampede of boars had gone by through the jungle and he had climbed up a tree, but not high enough. And I guess they just ripped off his bum. <laughs> um, well, that's, but uh, he survived. That's something. <laughs> and then he said that one time it did happen and they got him up a tree and a stampede of boars was going by below him. And he looked over in the neighboring tree and there was a jaguar just like holding on for dear life, looking back at him. And then he said the jaguar lost its grip and fell down into the stampede oh, no. like like Mufasa. And he's like, he's no. like, and I never saw that jaguar again. Like it was just gone. Did he snap some photos? Because that sounds like a great photo. He was op. probably hanging on for dear life. Anyway. Right. So those no, I mean, those stories were pretty crazy. But I do have a question about this boar attack for you. So you think Sarone is behind all this. And if that's what you think, then you must believe that Sarone, like, basically planned to turn Owen Wilson, uh, Gary, on them from the start. Yeah. Do you think he planned this boar attack? Do you think he trained that yeah. boar no, to attack like, them so he could gain their trust? <laughs> yes, I, I, that's the, the, that. But this isn't even part of my theory. That's just actually what the movie is saying, right? When when Gary and Denise leave to go shoot wild sound, Sarone is sleeping in a hammock and he uh -huh. opens his eyes when they leave. So he's planning he sure something. Does. <laughs> and then when they get attacked by a boar, he's ready to shoot it. He's not sleeping. That one shot that kills the boar seems to be what impresses Gary so much that he will oh, yeah. follow Sarone to the completely. bitter end, right? Like, he is uh -huh. on Sarone's side after that. Um, well, it's pretty hard to get that boar be at that same place. <laughs> no, I mean, it was just it was just them going out, you know, create suspense. Uh, Sarone, then that's another trust thing. He saved their life. They're owed, owed to him, you know, and then he starts to, you know, Gary, who who gets pulled in by this, 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 the, the power of this man, you know, who the evil yeah. power Gary's attracted to it, like, like a uh, moth to a flame, you know, right. yeah. don't go, don't go too close. And you got to love <laughs> Owen Wilson in the movie, don't you? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, man, what a cast. I know. And he did a great that, job. Everybody. That, yeah, was, no, you've got that was like Owen my favorite Wilson, part of John the movie. Voight, uh, Ice Cube, Danny Trejo. Like uh, it's got a, such a mm -hmm. good cast. Such good cast. Ice yeah. Cube oh. crushes it, boy. Ice Cube really oh, yeah. crushes the movie. I mean, you know, <laughs> And they also got one of his, he claims his music in there too, which is great too. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah that's true. Dr. Kale goes swimming. Basically, the boat got stuck and he's trying to dislodge the, uh, the, the propeller. And then he gets a wasp down his throat, yep. which incapacitates him for the rest of the movie. Now, they imply very overtly that Sarone did it. Yeah. <laughs> he somehow put this wasp and in he that straight man's up admits it. <laughs> underwater. Yes. No, I mean, the, he, he says that he did it. How did he do it? Well, but also, why did he do it? <laughs> I, <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, okay, so, yeah, and again, this isn't even part of my theory. This is just actually the movie. So what yeah, he no, did was he somehow put this wasp inside of the, like, the face mask part on the scuba gear that right. goes in your mouth. He must have put it in, like, the tube. Right, in the tube. This wasp is freaking huge. It's gigantic. It's big. Which also means that Sarone must have dropped that rope down to tangle up their motor. Yeah, no, it, it was his plan. Now, to Sarone's credit, he does save this guy's life, so he didn't want to kill him, I guess, or at least he didn't want to kill him yet. His plan was to trach this guy so that he can breathe through his neck and then say, now we have to go back where we came from to get him to a hospital, but we have to take the route that I wanted to originally that Dr. Kale wouldn't take. 
And so yes. that's his whole plan. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. I was like, this is just a crazy scheme, man. Yep. It's just crazy the number of of insane things that Sarone does for his weird plot. It's like like watching it was giving me flashbacks to our brother's Grimm episode. Like like this is a theory Whoa. we would come up with. Everything that Sarone uh-huh. does to do his con to get this documentary film crew into the right place to have them eaten by a have or at least have them lure out a snake he can catch. Right? Like it's just such a crazy scheme. Oh, and also his plan is to knock all but one of their fuel barrels off during the, like, the... the <laughs> Yeah, that's also his plan. <laughs> that happens right? a little later. So, like, when they're going back, uh, the next thing that they encounter when they're going on Sarone's route is there is a wall in the middle of a river. Now, what do you, what do you think about this wall? Do you think Sarone put it there? The implication by the movie is that the native tribe built that wall to keep the snake in. Right. Like they they know the snake is so dangerous that it can't be like unleashed on the world. (laughs) So they built this wall to keep it from getting out. And that could kind of go with Saron's thing. Like he, as the priest of this snake, needs to release it. Right. Like it's been sealed away and he's breaking the seal. Terry Flores seems to suspect that Saron is actually the one who put this wall there to like stop them. Which one of them was correct? Did Saron put the wall there or was it the tribe? It was a tribe trying to cut off, cut off their sacred lands and all that sort of stuff. The desecration of the tribe. Okay, cool. Let me tell you one of the fun things for us as writers is that, that when we were brought on board as a production rewrite, it was already started CGI in the movie. So they're already Uh doing the computer graphics on the snake scenes. So we changed, we threw all the characters out threw the motive out, but we had to write the script to hit each one of those (laughs) marks. That's okay, in the original yeah. script because That's they already cool. started doing the work. So we had to mm-hmm. put all new characters in a new story, but weave it around the existing uh, uh, action sequences, which was a very fun challenge. But we had to hit the mark and figure out, okay, who's going to do it? And we used some of the, you know, obviously Hans Bauer's original ideas to, to you know, weave into this. Yeah, I, that, that's actually really similar to a, a story you tell in your book about John Woo. He had storyboards for Mission Impossible 2, but didn't actually have like a script and just needed someone to write a story to go along with the storyboards. <laughs> Sorry, it, it comes to you in all different ways. And that's what you sort of learn to do is how do you write to what they need? Especially yeah, in production yeah. rewrite, because it's like, okay, the clock is ticking and everyone wants budget. And usually they want something for actors to play. The very next thing that they find past that wall is Danny Trejo's boat. Here's where I want to get into the relationship between Danny Trejo and Cerrone and Mateo. So on Danny Trejo's boat, they find a photo of Danny Trejo, Mateo, and Cerrone. So these three were working together? So the newspaper clipping has a picture of all of them holding a snake. The article below does say something about these people like catching an anaconda and that it was very dangerous. My Portuguese isn't really that great. (laughs) So um, I'm not quite sure what it's saying. But anyway, I think the implication by the movie itself is that they were all working together and Danny Trejo was out there alone trying to catch the snake or possibly if it's a demon god snake, sacrifice himself to summon it to that part of the river. And then Mateo was like the person who they needed to use to bring in more either sacrifices or if you're just doing the normal interpretation, bait to lure the snake out. It's a plan. That was it. It was Mateo was the boat captain. They needed a boat. And so they were going to he was going to take him, make sure, go right to the place. Saron gets on, will trick the people and think that he's just got a boat out. 
and then we'll pull them in. I think Mateo, the actor, is just looking, you know, mean and just a little angry at times. But I think he's also trying to cover up the fact that they're in cahoots. Okay. Was there a reason that Cerrone needed to get them to Danny Trejo's boat? He grabs that, like, chest from it, right? But I think it, it had a gun and, like, a med kit. It was like a, like a bug-out box. Well, it also has the snakeskin in it that he rolls out. So do you think that he led them there just to get that? In, in which case, it does actually add credence to your theory because maybe that snakeskin is like a religious item and he's like, the other priest died. I have to recover this artifact. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, that could be it. But uh, <laughs> at this point, Mateo gets eaten by the snake or at the very least, it breaks his neck. So Mateo, Danny Trejo, and Cerrone, I'm presuming all three of them were like priests of this malevolent snake, yeah, right? Yeah, I think so. Why did Mateo fall off of Danny Trejo's boat? Like he just suddenly like, whoop, <laughs> falls backwards into the water. The only reason I can come up with for this is if they needed to bring the anaconda out and he, as the priest sacrificed himself to do it <laughs> like to get the anaconda there right then <laughs> but yeah, I, that what could do you think? be <laughs> a, that perhaps he is that dedicated they have discovered a real religion but they are actually trying to utilize that religion and the sacrifices to get to a million get dollars money. yeah to actually catch god <laughs> as explained in the following scene yeah. <laughs> so he rolls out the snake skin yeah <laughs> this is where jlo says Snakes don't eat people. And this was in the trailer. John Voigt or Cerrone says, oh, they don't? Then points to like a scar that you can barely see on his face. (laughs) I'm like, what does that have to do with snakes? Did a snake bite your face? Like, And also, when I was watching the trailer and and I saw this scene on VHS, it's not high enough definition. You can't see the scar. No, you just point at his face. (laughs) You can't see the scar. Exactly. I I actually thought as a kid... That he was just being like, you think so? I'm living proof that they do. Like, not even pointing to, just pointing at himself. Like, I was like, well, I guess that proves it. Yeah. (laughs) I guess. When Cerrone describes how snakes kill you, I just want to say it's like a very affectionate description. (laughs) He's like, they wrap you in a warm embrace and you get the privilege of hearing your bones break before the power causes your veins to explode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which two things about that yeah i'm thinking like you know it's because he's like he's kind of become a follower of this religion sort of and it's like you know his god so he kind of worships it to him it's kind of like uh, a spiritual experience so you're thinking that uh, mateo just kind of finally gave in to the call of the void and decided to feel the snake's warm embrace (laughs) (laughs) he's been longing for he's like i just want to hear my my blood vessels rupture (laughs) i want to hear my bones break (laughs) and that brings me to my next point this is not how constrictors kill right like how constrictors kill i mean not that they're not strong or very powerful but as with most predators they want to conserve energy and use the least amount of power possible to kill the prey and so what they do is they do wrap it with enough strength that their prey can't escape but then because everything has to breathe whenever it breathes out it will just constrict slightly using very little strength and then the creature can't breathe in more Right. And then eventually that creature will suffocate. 
and then it will just eat them after they have suffocated and they can't run away anymore, right? (laughs) They don't just like snap your neck and squeeze you so tight your blood vessels rupture unless it's a demon snake. Right, okay. I'm not sure why Cerrone is so sure that this anaconda is worth a million dollars or subsequently why Gary is so sure of that. (laughs) But Gary really, really wants to catch this anaconda. Right. I just have to ask you, why on earth does Owen Wilson, why on earth does Gary even want to catch a snake with this absolute psychopath? He seems to have the reasoning like, well, we're not going to find the tribe because we got to go back to this hospital to get Dr. Kale to safety. So we might as well so we film, might as well Cerrone, film catching Cerrone catching an anaconda. Battling that a would snake. be freaking cool. Just like when he <laughs> shot that boar, man. That was cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So that boar incident, like it put him on a huge pedestal in, in Gary's mind. Like he thinks Cerrone is just the biggest badass. He's like, oh, I just want to see him kill again. He seems to be thinking like, now I'm not going to get any money for this or something, which maybe you might think if you were the director, because like, oh, if we can't make it, I won't get residuals, right? But he's the sound guy. He's below the line. (laughs) He gets paid no matter what. He's not. So he has no horse in this race. (laughs) (laughs) He might as well just bring his friend back to the hospital instead of battling. I mean, if your friend dies, you might not get paid. But like, if the movie doesn't get made you're still gonna get paid man so long as your employer is alive (laughs) do you think maybe gary and sarone talked like off camera like maybe when he saved them from the boar well no they 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 did talk off camera like denise is is gonna go to bed with gary she's like i'm tired and gary's like uh just hang on you go alone denise i gotta go talk to i gotta go talk to sarone for a minute and then they talk right. he he deeply respects sarone <laughs> he's like i just want some more of this man's time right <laughs> i actually believe that he has been pulled into the cult at this point he is now a believer like i was okay so he was converted yeah mm-hmm and I think right. that that makes sense, right? Like, like I see that yeah, as the he, only explanation for Gary. Certainly just, makes his actions. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. uh, his <laughs> insanity is that he is now like a zealot. He is committed one hundred percent to this new religion that he discovered. You know. Okay. Cerrone kills a monkey. He's going to use this as like a small sacrifice just to see if that works. Gary says, "Let's film Cerrone catching a big snake." Terry says, have you lost your mind? Good question. Mm-hmm. Gary says, no, I haven't lost my mind. I'm completely lucid. I think it's you guys who need to open up your eyes. <laughs> he's so crazy. Like, I think this is pretty good evidence for he's been converted to the cult of the snake. He's like, you guys, you know, you yeah, guys don't see it. Talking I like a see cultist. it. You guys just got to open your mind. I'm completely lucid now. Like, now that I've been converted, I can see everything. <laughs> He speaks as if he's had a religious experience. Like, he speaks as if he's had some sort of awakening. So I can buy it completely. Right after that, he says, we don't know anything, but I know who does. This guy. And then Uh points at the prophet of the snake. (laughs) Yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And then this is when Cerrone kind of, like, he actually takes the crew hostage. Because Ice Cube isn't going to go along with it. And he pulls out a gun and shoots at Ice Cube. But he doesn't kill Ice Cube. Do you think the snake needs live bait? Because it didn't come for the dead monkey. Right. Well, it did. It eats the monkey and it gets hooked. But I think that it's mad at them because this was an improper sacrifice. It was just a dead monkey. And it wants like yeah, a living it wants human. wants live humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
And uh, this is when Saron realizes he needs to offer human sacrifices, which he had been trying to avoid up to this point. So he's hijacking this ship full of people and taking them to the anaconda. Was he planning to use them as like sacrifices to summon this snake so he could catch it or do whatever he wants to do? I don't think he minded when they, you know, they sort of no, fell in the water. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, his plan at that point was to take the boat. Now they're hostages, you know, and he was, let me get this thing. And, and I think, you know, using the monkey as bait was was more of what he was looking for. But then right, okay. as he became more desperate, you know, baby bird falls in the water and just brings the anaconda forward, you know. So, I mean, he'll use anything. He has no morals or ethics. That's for sure. As a priest, he, he yeah, a moral. <laughs> totally. And then it eats Gary, <laughs> the the, the yeah. new zealot. <laughs> uh, you know, it got Mateo, and now Dick Gary gets his baptism by warm embrace. <laughs> and after after Gary dies, Saron pays him respect. Right, he throws flowers in the river, and he says, "May the souls of the faithful depart through the mercies of God. Rest in peace, Amen." You know, like this. No matter what, right. this is a religious thing that happened. Right, like th- uh-huh. they're relating his death to something religious. I think that's uh, you know another point for the snake god theory. Now, I think that Denise, because she was close with Gary, is starting to realize a little bit about the religious cult of the snake. Is she getting converted? I don't think she's getting converted. I just think she senses what had happened to Gary. And she kind of senses that this snake is supernatural in nature because she says to Sarone, it was you who brought that snake. You brought the devil. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't say you lured it here or you caught the snake, which is what he did. She says you brought it almost like he summoned it, you know? Okay. So then he's holding them hostage and Terry tries to seduce Sarone. The one thing that uh, that you're going to have trouble overcoming, in my opinion, is the fact that Mr. Sir in Holes is canonically transgender. Uh, he used to be a woman. <laughs> and uh, Sarone says to J-Lo at this point, it's been a long time since I had a woman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, what do you think? Well, <laughs> Did he mean to say since I was a woman? <laughs> that is what I think. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> he's he's you wow, know, he's touching so. Terry's body, just remembering, you know, back in the day. Oh yeah. Oh, he's like, I used to have these. <laughs> uh, he is transgender, as we'll find out later in holes. Now that isn't necessarily a hundred percent confirmed, but like, yeah, it is. He's using a fake accent. He he purposefully uses bad grammar throughout this movie uh, to go along with his fake accent and his you know fake name that he created. Because as we know, his real name is Marion Savio. Mm-hmm. Since I had a woman, since I was a woman, that's part of that. You know, part of his his persona, just using the wrong words, bad grammar, okay. bad accent. So you think <laughs> it's just an unfinished sentence? Yeah, it's been a long time since I had a woman's <laughs> body. Yeah, he just he didn't finish <laughs> okay. the sentence because you know. <laughs> maybe he doesn't want to reveal that, you know? It's his own private matter. He doesn't need to tell them if he doesn't want to. At this point, uh, Ice Cube attacks him and then Westridge just takes him out. So then Saron is tied up and this is where we get the scene where J-Lo says, this was all one big setup. Mateo, you stranded your route to the hospital. And then Saron says, how could you forget about the wasp? (laughs) I love that he reveals it. Like she didn't even know. (laughs) But he's also acting like a villain like in regards to events that he had nothing to do with, <laughs> like when he's talking to JLo, 
he absolutely didn't kill Mateo, but he's certainly acting like he did. <laughs> like, I thought maybe there was like an alternate script where he did kill Mateo and some remnants of it are there. <laughs> I don't know. We're digging you know deeper. This is good. I like this. Okay. <laughs> Mateo, Mateo, Mateo gets hurt. More money for me, isn't it? Uh, so, you know, I, I, th- I think <laughs> it's just it's, it's money. You know, he, at this point, he doesn't need Mateo anymore. Mateo is just going to take another piece of the action. Okay, okay. I get it. So, cool. yeah, so he goes, uh, you'll, you'll go with Grace. Go with God. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, Saron impression. <laughs> oh. What a movie, man. At this point, Denise walks up to Saron while he's tied up and she's the only one left on the boat. She's holding a knife. She says, aren't you going to pray? And then Sarone kills or at least renders unconscious Denise using only his legs. Right. He, he just cut off the oxygen, right? Like if, if you can block the blood flow to the brain for, you know, even just like a minute, then a person will fall unconscious because your brain needs oxygen, right? As he has his legs around her neck and he's kind of slamming her up and down, if you listen to him, he's like... He's speaking in tongues. Like, he he says some sort of strange incantation, like some sort of weird prayer. And I listened to it several times and couldn't quite pick out what he was saying. But at the very end, it ends with Santos, 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 which, of course, means holy, holy, holy. And I was wondering, was this in the script? Like, do you know what he was actually saying there? Or or was this just something that, like, uh, John Voight kind of threw in? I think it was one of those on the set things. Uh, yeah, I, okay. I wish I, I wish I had done that kill with him tied to the pole and jumping in the air. You know, that, yeah. I mean that's great. I always catch the information in the movie. Oh shit! You know, <laughs> you know what happens is when you're making the movie, you're there, you're on set, you've got your stunt coordinators. You know, the director, how can it visualize this better? How can we make this move? And you know, so a lot of a lot of changes happen on set. They don't want to pay for the writer to be there. Frankly, I don't want to be on set because. Yeah. You're watching people do setups, and unless you're the director, the cinematographer, the actor, you're sort of sitting around a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fun to yeah. go and see things, um, but usually it's a little better to be working on another project. <laughs> so sense. there's things you go see the movie, you go, oh, okay, that's different. Uh, I like it, or <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But usually um, I like it more, because once again, I'm a fan of the actors. I'm a big yeah. fan of actors. Uh, they, they get a bad rap. They bring yeah. so much to a movie. They, oh, yeah. They're so creative. And, and mm-hmm. what they what what they impart in the roles and make them come alive. Yeah. Um, and my experience with actors has always been positive in terms of just what they bring to it and how they want that character to come out of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I've been fortunate working with a lot of great actors. And one of my favorite actors is Bruce Willis, Die Hard with Vengeance. <laughs> yeah, a big Bruce Willis fan and, oh, and a yeah. great guy, really easy to get along with. Um, just it was fun to work with him on uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Just you know, man, he knows what he wanted to do. We had, we were doing something else with the character, and he said, "No, it's not the it's this character." And he was right. You know, I mean, he knew yeah. the character. He knows John McClane. <laughs> he does. He knows it, and it's like, okay, when he speaks, you know, you're gonna listen. Well, she's gonna get his way anyway. So of course, <laughs> He's yeah, Bruce yeah. Willis. <laughs> man, you've worked with some really cool people: Bruce Willis, Jennifer Lopez, John Voight, Tom Cruise. <laughs> Yeah. I'll tell you who's a wonderful guy is Tom Hanks on Turner and Hooch. Oh, yeah. yeah, what was great on oh, Turner man. and Hooch, and this never happens, is that we were they were we were brought on to the production rewrite. Tom didn't have anything to play, and so we were there to create his character. And Tom came into the meetings with the director, who was the director at that time, and the three of us would work on the script. And Tom was great. He'd draw lines. I'll write that down. He's a funny guy. And he was just really, really great to work with. So um, yeah. Tom is who you think he is. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Well, at that point where he says, Santos, 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 I think he's consecrating Denise to be a true sacrifice. Like, the monkey didn't work. Okay. That was a bad sacrifice, and it made the, the, the anaconda mad. He consecrates Denise, and then he dumps her in the water, and the anaconda shows up immediately. Okay. He summons it. So you're saying the snake is only satisfied if it has either a willing believer sacrifice or an unwilling but consecrated sacrifice. Yes, <laughs> Because it didn't mind Mateo and Gary. And the methods of consecration <laughs> do vary a little bit, but I, I think right here it's pretty, pretty apparent that he's sanctifying her. So it eats Denise. It shows up. They fight it for a while. It kills Westridge. Not only does it kill him, it straight up breaks a giant tree while killing him. Like, it just, it it sure just snaps did. that tree in half. That's insane. <laughs> then Kale shows up like a total badass and tranquilizes Sarone. And Sarone falls in the river. Yeah. But he's like, fine. Like, he just shows up again later. Yeah, he's okay. He's, <laughs> he's <up>. unconscious <laughs> in a river, but whatever. That, that doesn't affect him. I mean, it certainly affected uh, Denise. Right. Well, I think that the snake <laughs> doesn't eat him because he just appeased it with a proper sacrifice with Denise. Yeah. Maybe because of that sacrifice, like it gives him a boon, a blessing, and that's why he survives because of the snake. The snake saves okay. him. Okay. So you think the snake gave him a ride? Like it picked <laughs> him up and took him to safety? Like he rode that snake to paradise? Possibly. <laughs> no, the snake's dead at this point. When JLo shoots his snake in the face, he turns on her and shouts, You killed my warrior snake! <laughs> Why does he call it a warrior snake? And does it have anything to do with, like, how he believes he's going to get a million dollars for it? Or is it something about, like, the snake being a reincarnated warrior spirit or something? <laughs> I'm going with the latter. <laughs> yeah. I think, I, nice. I think it's closer to the connection he has with the snakes, that he, he feels at one with them, and he really <laughs> identifies with their killer instinct and... And, and and how well they kill. Because when he does that whole speech about, you know, they hug you closer than your, your, your lover. You know, so yeah. he, I mean, uh -huh. he's actually respecting the snake at that point and respecting their power. And yeah. I, think, I think he's somewhat envious of it. I think Voight brings it there. You know I mean? He hands he it does. up, but he pulls it off. No, that's great. That's that's how I always saw it. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that that's that you agree with it at least. <laughs> One thing that's very exciting as a screenwriter is to see actors play the part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know we visualize in our mind, but then you see Tom Cruise take a role and turn into Maverick. You see yeah. uh, John Voight suddenly demonize this character and take it to this mm -hmm. really evil place, but also have fun with it, tongue in cheek at the yeah. same time. He's you know you can laugh at it. You know I mean. I sometimes when I see the movie, I feel bad for the snake at the end. I go, oh, you know, it's just trying to feed its kids, you know, leave it yeah. alone. <laughs> uh, we were wondering, is there one or two anacondas in this movie? Because Yeah, I've, I've always wondered this. It seems like Terry kills the anaconda and then it comes back. And I think the anaconda that comes back is maybe a slightly different color, like it has red spots instead of yellow. Were there two anacondas or was it just one that was, you know, like unkillable and kept coming back? This was the land of the anacondas. There are many anacondas. Oh, okay. Watch where you walk because they're under. They're watching you all the time. So no, there, there, there was different anacondas. So as they okay. went to a new place, there was that. That was that anaconda's home, especially at the uh, the factory, the defunct factory. Uh, there's the babies there, and that's the mother is hiding the babies. That's the nest. So they end up in an anaconda nest. I say that's a mother protecting her young. I gotta ask about this place. So they get to an abandoned, ruined deserted like settlement there's just broken buildings 
and guns, weapons scattered everywhere. I think Terry Flores even says, I don't even want to know what happened here when she gets there. Did Cerrone do this? Did he show up here and just storm this place? Kill everybody? Like, send them running for their lives with leaving their weapons behind? Possibly he showed up there and summoned his warrior snake, and then that was all because of the snake. I don't know. That, that's the impression I got watching it, was that he came here with his snake and just just massacred them. Because, uh, I mean, he certainly seems to be acting like this is his place now, and it's full of, like, evidence of resistance. Yeah. So... Who did it? Who attacked this place? Well, my take on it is that they were picked off one by one by the anacondas okay. in a brutal okay. massacre. So it's like alien. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's a lot of aliens in this movie, a lot of Jaws in this movie in terms mm-hmm. of point of view and things uh, like that. I mean, you, you go to Jaws. Definitely. And you know, Steven set that up. That was part of the original script. And same thing with the tower. And again, they were doing the CGI. We just had to, okay, get these characters to there. You know, and again, yeah. you know, Ice Cube just crushes it, man. I, I think uh, I mean, he should be given more leading parts with action yeah. movies. I don't know why he's not a big Marvel star. <laughs> I actually had a, a question about Ice Cube. He plays a character who you think is going to die, right? Like, it's not necessarily the main character, but he always survives. We emailed Hans Bauer, the original writer, and he said that Ice Cube's character originally died. And we were wondering, was this something that had to be rewritten? Like, does Ice Cube, is he always like, I have to survive, right? Because I'm Ice Cube kind of thing. You know, it's a good question. I can't really recall. It's better if he survives. Of course, I mean, yes. I, I feel uh, yeah. better with both of them surviving than losing him at long. It's like, that's one too many. And I think, right. you know, that's an emotional thing, understanding your audience. And, you know, you want, you want the survivor. And uh, those are the two that you want to survive. Yeah. Unless he's too Definitely. tough. He's too tough. He's as tough as the anaconda. He is. Yeah. It's Come on, bring it on. That's all you got. You know, he's that sort of guy. <laughs> he acts as the anaconda in the head. <laughs> yeah, I know he does. <laughs> but I do like, you know, I do like uh, a Westridge with the golf club coming through the window. And... Oh, man, what a cast. <laughs> Seriously. Well, we didn't know the cast. And that was a surprise. I mean, oh. literally, you know, we, you know, we did this thing, we moved on and um, then we go to the premiere and, and you see all these people in the movie and it's like, and JLo was an unknown at that point. I mean, relatively, uh, right. and she mm-hmm. was great, you know, so it was, it was, it was amazing casting. It was like yeah. top down, amazing casting, casting directly oh, yeah, yeah. Them oh. credit. And yeah. they really don't get the credit for the work they do and finding those actors at the right time in their careers and, and putting mm. them in those roles. And they really yeah. elevate the movie. They fight the snake for a while, and then it ends up eating Cerrone. I just want to say that POV shot of the snake's, like from the point of view of the snake's gullet, while it swallowed Cerrone, was like an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, no, <laughs> that shot was it was so it good. was transcendent. Actually, oh my gosh, for me watching it, it, it was almost like a religious experience, and I was like, wow, wow. I want to be baptized in the gullet of a snake. <laughs> Well, and he was baptized because he came back. <laughs> yeah, out no, because he gave it a proper <laughs> sacrifices, unlike everyone else, right? He he, two people doused in monkey blood plus Denise. Um, the snake does wrap him up and give him that warm embrace that he and his followers all want. Um, <laughs> uh huh. And you hear his bones crack, just like he described yeah, a little bit. But he's also clearly not dead from this. Like something pops out in his like his jaw. He did die, but it brings him back to life. This is stated clearly in the opening of the movie. <laughs> like the, the snake did exactly what it said in the opening text. It kills him 
eats him, vomits him out, and brings him back to life, just like it said it would. <laughs> so it's, right. it's in keeping but in with the, opening the actual text movie. Says that it will kill him. It does it to kill him again, which it does not do. Well, maybe maybe it was planning to kill him again, but he got away. Right. Or I mean, I but, don't know. You you're the one who's going to tell me how he got away. Well, I, I I'll would just focus on the fact that it vomits him out right in front of Terry, and he winks. And he winks. At her. He's clearly still alive. Like he smiles and winks. Right? This isn't some like he's a, he's happy. Twitch. He's alive and he's loving no, life. Yeah, he was just <laughs> baptized by his god. This is what he wanted. You know. Uh huh. He collapses on the floor and he's he's done. You know, he's gonna get up. He'll he'll start a new life. Right. You know, he's been baptized. The old life is gone. He's gonna start a new life. Yep. Oh my god. You know. Again, I wish I'd written this script. And he get regurgitates and he blinks his eye. You know what I mean? <laughs> to me, it's just John Boyd having fun. It's take number uh, yeah. eight, and, and he's just, you know, and I think it just blew the roof off. And in editing, they went, oh, my God, we got to put that on. I remember sitting in the theater and seeing it for the first time. The whole place just screamed. Me, too. <laughs> like, oh, my God. You know, so it's so it's so out of there, but it's totally, it just caps the character. I would give credit to John Boyd on that. I just yeah. think he's just playing with that he role, having it. fun. Oh, What's Lord. the weirdest thing you could do at that moment? But I do think <laughs> it is, you know, you know, I'll see you in another lifetime. You know, that sort of yeah. thing. I'm not <laughs> He's done a with genius. You. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of I'll see you in another lifetime, there's one last really silly fan theory about Anaconda. This one's real wacky. <laughs> and it has to do with the amazing Disney film Holes based on the novel by Lewis Sacker. Because John Voight's in that movie, and he plays a character who is really into hunting like reptiles and snakes. And his name in that movie is Mr. Sir, which sounds a lot like Cerrone. And I ha- we had a theory that maybe this character, Paul Cerrone, survived, moved back to the States, changed his name to Mr. Sir, and started, you know, hunting down reptiles at, at this Camp Green Lake in, in the movie Holes. <laughs> you think there's you know, any it's chance confidential you information. You realize you're going to have to leave the country now. <laughs> oh, no. The CIA would be hunting you down. Down because you revealed the the, the secret. <laughs> I think it's great. I love this stuff. It's fun. It's fun. You know what I mean? I, I it's yeah. I love of course. <laughs> well. Um, thank you so much for talking to us and, oh, yeah. and uh, is, you know entertaining our silly so theories and telling us the backstory of the movies you've written. So we have some time now that we can talk about your book, uh, which I read and I think it's great. The book is Screenwriting is Rewriting by Jack Epps Jr. I graduated from the American Film Institute. I have a master's in screenwriting. So at first it kind of seemed like stuff I'd read before. But then as I got into it, like you have some very interesting tactics and stuff for rewriting um, that I really loved that I hadn't necessarily heard before. Um, And I like how the book is structured in a very unique way with just these passes. And I think that's uh, very important to do a story in passes. Uh, When I write, um, and of course I'm also an illustrator, so when I draw like you can't draw an amazing picture without drawing a bad picture first (laughs) and then sketching over it again and again and like trying to write an amazing screenplay is just daunting and overwhelming the idea to do it in passes is the only thing that makes it doable saying i'll write it a bad one first then a slightly better one then another then another then another um so i really liked that well it came out of of my professional experience uh, working with uh, jim cash um Mm -hmm. and I, i attribute our careers together and the movies getting made of our, our ability and willingness to rewrite and dig in that you can't, you know, as you said, you, 
you write your first draft because I call it discovery draft. You're just trying to figure out what the story mm -hmm. is and who the characters are and what's going on. And from a creative point of view, you've got to let yourself play and, and, and explore. And I yeah. think what we do as creative people is we put a lot of pressure on being perfect. Get it out of the box. Everything's going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I want to do is say, no, just get down what it is and what you're feeling and then step back and then take a look at what you have and try to and also get notes. You've got to find people to, to talk to who are going to give you some perspective, because when we're when we're inside our scripts, we have no perspective. You know, mm -hmm. we, our perspective is it sucks. So we need to find out what works. Super important. And then we need to find out, OK, what doesn't work? So, you know, as a as a professional writer going to the studio, I get lots of what doesn't work. You know? <laughs> yeah, okay, this sure. doesn't work. This doesn't work. They don't tend to tell you what works. Uh, and you yeah. start to learn that, oh, what they don't mention works. So I always say, if you're going to get notes from somebody, get notes on what works first, because they'll everybody will give you criticism. Go to 7-Eleven, he'll tell you about why your screenplay sucks. But if you can <laughs> yeah, find totally. out why it works, then you protect those things, and that's your building blocks. Yeah. So I think part of it is, if uh, Jim and I did works and passes. That's just how we did it. We'd work on the bigger things. We'd work on character. Character comes first, because who's, whose movie is it? What's it about? Get your character, you know the character's story, what's your character arc, because you have to then design your plot uh, and your scenes and your acts to, to tell that character's story. I mean, it's Maverick's story. I, I know, and if I don't know what Maverick's story is, how can I write a plot? I'm just going to have a bunch of stuff happening and I'm going to shoehorn the character in. But we knew what Maverick's arc was. Now we have to design the story so that it pressures his arc and forces him to act. Um, and then, you know, scene construction and theme and all these elements, by doing series of passes, you layer your script. And over time, it will it will be closer to your intention. And that's what I'm trying to say is yeah. you have to know your intention. What do you want to do with this? Because notes make you crazy. So you mm -hmm. have to know your intention and stay to that intention. Yeah. It gets lost. It's easy to get a bunch of notes. And next thing you're off here down an alleyway. You don't know where you are. And, and then you can't get back. I mean, you talk a lot about notes, and that was one very unique uh, and interesting thing I found about this book was that in each chapter, you include examples of common notes that you might get based on whatever the you know the the topic of the chapter is, whether it's relationships or or conflict or whatever. Um, and I thought that was really cool. Like I I had never seen that before. Well, what I want to do is sort of try also, you know, work young writers to say, look, these notes apply to different areas so you just there's a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater redo the whole thing but mm -hmm. the note is saying something specific so if you're getting this note look in this area because that might be the place to solve the note um and that's again from a lot of work you know as a professional writer you don't want to change things because you're on the clock they need it quickly so i want to make sure if i'm going to change stuff i'm going to change the right things so it's going to mm -hmm. address the notes but not throw the baby out and now they, you know, hand it and they go, well, what the hell is this? We like, you know, so it's a guide to help you look to the areas that you should be working on uh, yeah. as opposed to just trying to figure it out. And that's the hardest thing, figure out the note behind the notes because notes right. are not clear. People mm -hmm. don't really know how to speak to writers. They think totally. they do. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast uh thanks for talking to us about all your movies it's been definitely a blast and thanks for writing all your movies they're all really really fun to watch <laughs> thank you so much for giving us so much of your time 
And thanks for going along with all of our kooky theories and crazy questions. I hope we didn't dig too deep into your movies. <laughs> no, it's fun. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I thought I thought it was fun to hear the fan theories. I, I think they're fun. Yeah. Um, it's just digging deeper and having it taken to the to level. You know, what I mean, it's sort of like you know, it's like fan fiction when people write stories after work. I think I think it's mm-hmm. great. It yeah. just keeps it alive. And and I'm glad you enjoyed them. The point is, we wrote them for people to enjoy. That's the point. We're so grateful to Jack Epps Jr. for coming on the show. We're going to say goodbye to him now, and we're going to move on to talking about Holes. I think Holes is an amazing movie. I love Holes, and I think it's also an amazing book. Apparently, Holes, when they were going to adapt it into a film, the first screenplay was written by Richard Kelly, uh huh, who wrote and directed Donnie Darko. Oh, no. It greatly departed from the source material, and it was going to be a very dark, violent adaptation that was set in a post-apocalyptic world. What? <laughs> a post-apocalyptic world? And as much as I believe Lewis Sacker was obviously the best choice and created a modern masterpiece with holes, I would have liked to see Richard Kelly. Yeah, version. I kind of want to see the cool. Donnie Darko version. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm glad they didn't do that because that would be like the thing Hollywood always does, right? Where they like buy an IP and then use the name and then just it's a completely different story. This is the one time when they did it right. And apparently they were going to do it wrong to begin with. And then they were just like, Mm -hmm. let's just get the original author because he he knows the story. He knows what's important. He knows what to keep in and what to cut out. And hey, guess what? He did. (laughs) You you actually mentioned this to me. I'm, I'm not sure if I knew this before, but Lewis Sacker actually wrote the screenplay right not yeah, just yeah, the yeah. novel but he wrote the screenplay for holes which is incredible that's amazing isn't it natural to assume a well-established and highly regarded novelist can write a screenplay <laughs> like yes it, I, I mean well i think it's it's really old-fashioned hollywood thinking as is most hollywood thinking because back in the day which is of course where most of the older executives making decisions were born <laughs> screenwriting was a very different art than novel writing but in the modern day, okay. <laughs> any writer is a writer. If you want to get a job, you have to diversify. Like every writer has written a screenplay and a novel and a comic book and just everything, right? Like writers exactly. are writers now. And people, for some reason, Hollywood doesn't quite get that. They kind of think that, oh, if you bring in the author, he's going to be kind of a diva, right? He's not going to want to change things. Of course he doesn't want to change things. It's his book, and he shouldn't change things. If you're making it to a movie, you're doing it for a reason, right? <laughs> right, because yeah, the reason like is the just novel. to cash in on the IP. No, yeah, yeah. They're, they're not doing it for any other reason than money, and unfortunately they haven't figured out that you get more money when you make a good movie. I don't know. So I'm going to give a, a quick recap of Holes, if you don't mind. I read it, like, as a kid. It's a great book. It's a great movie. I love it. Basically, the plot of this movie is that um, a boy, Stanley Yelnets, is accidentally charged with uh, with theft of some famous shoes. He's sent to Camp Green Lake, which is kind of like a, a place for troubled boys to get reformed. All they do there every day is force every single kid to dig a giant five foot by five foot hole in the hot blistering sun in a dry parched desert. Yep. It's not designed to help these kids. It's in fact designed to find a treasure hidden in that desert. Yeah. With a lot of flashbacks and a lot of story, um, we find out about this treasure. Stanley and his best friend Zero find the treasure. And in the end, Stanley's acquitted. He gets to go home. They keep the treasure and they live happily ever after. Basically, what you're saying is that holes exist in a universe where there is magic and curses and where people have like 
really weird, crazy schemes, like forcing kids <laughs> to dig holes until they find treasure. Oh, definitely. I think kind of the cool thing about this movie and about the book, and also the weird thing about it, is that it has a bunch of stories in it. We've got the story of Madame Zeroni and his great, great, dirty, rotten pig steel and great grandfather. We've got the story of kissing Kate Barlow. And then we have the grandpa's story of trying to survive in the desert and going to God's thumb. We have the shoe robbery. Like, that's, that's a ba- flashback. The trial, that's a flashback. The, um, this, the, the warden, I'm tired of this grandpa. That's a flashback. Like, this movie is nonstop flashbacks. All from different, like, sometimes the same event from different perspectives, right? But somehow it works. Like, I've never seen a movie that can do this and work. It manages to weave together like five or six different stories seamlessly. And I think that just goes to show how well Lewis Sacker knew his story. The dude's a master. He's so good at writing. Back to my theory, though. The first thing we see in this movie is a snake. I think that's telling us something right there. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, totally. When Stanley gets to Camp Green Lake, the first shot we see of Mr. Sir is of his hand and arm reaching into a bowl of sunflower seeds. He has a visible snake tattoo on his forearm. He sure does. And I think that's because, like, he was part of the cult of the snake. You know, he didn't have necessarily that tattoo back when he, you know, he was in Anaconda, but he got it later to remind himself. He branded himself himself after his baptism. Yeah. Cerrone died in Anaconda. You might say that he came back, right? Like he kind of got regurgitated and was alive when he got regurgitated. But either way, he wasn't in good condition, right? Like he broke some bones. And how did he come back good as new as Mr. Sir? Yeah, well, I think that he went back to the States and uh, he got a lot of good plastic surgery. He doesn't have that scar on the side of his face anymore. He probably was in the hospital for a long time. It probably emotionally scarred him. I think one of the biggest uh, evidences of this theory is the fact that he barely changed his pseudonym. Cerrone, what, Paul Cerrone? He just shortened it to Mr. Sir. Sir Uh Cerrone, right? He just shortened it slightly, you know? He wasn't even very creative there. I can totally get down (laughs) with that. Then I want to ask you, Mr. Sir eats sunflower seeds constantly because he gave up smoking. Did he smoke an anaconda? I don't remember him smoking even once. Unfortunately not. I really wish he had. I, I wish was he looking had through too, like, oh, perfect. No, no. But you know what? He, he probably he could have started, started smoking. Sm- it's been years. <laughs> right. It's been several years. He probably started smoking after that extremely stressful experience. Yeah. And, and we know that he does start smoking after extremely stressful experiences. Because at the end of this movie, if you look in the background, He's Mr. Sir, while they're waiting yeah, for the police to pick them up, he takes out a cigarette and lights it up. Right. right. Like, but that's because what he, he does. was a smoker before but dude yeah totally confirmed like oh, no but what we're saying is that he's just laid out well not, <laughs> evidence yeah. from movies he what we're saying is that like he's an addict right like he's addicted to smoking and they often fluctuate from one end to the other okay. during anaconda he was off he was off cigarettes he went back on after a traumatic experience one of the first things they establish about him is that he is not worried about rattlesnakes he is worried about yellow-spotted lizards. Seems like with his history in Anaconda, he might be more worried about snakes than other... Yeah, well, let's talk about that scene. So he comes out, he's kind of showing Stanley around the yard. He says about rattlesnakes, you don't need to worry about them. You don't bother them. They won't bother you, usually. 
And then he says, being bit by a rattler ain't the worst thing that can happen to you. You won't die, usually. Not like an anaconda. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I think what he's saying here is like, usually you worship a snake, it leaves you alone. But that snake did attack him and it was very traumatic, right? And also he did get bit from it and he didn't die from it, right? This is why he's not necessarily worried about snakes, He's kind of given up his life of snake hunting, right? Now, right, But he still has the urge to hunt. And man, is this guy crazy about hunting things, right? But back when we first see him, where we see his hand going into sunflower seeds, he actually has more than one tattoo. On his forefinger and his middle finger, he has two giant rings. But on his ring finger and his pinky finger, he has the letters V and E tattooed on his ring finger and his pinky finger. Well, I think that he has the letters L and O tattooed on his first and second finger, but we can't see those letters because he's wearing rings over them. Basically, what I'm saying is I think he has the word love tattooed on one hand. And the reason I think that is because there is a very famous reference that filmmakers just love, and it actually gets used a lot. Um, a movie called Night of the Hunter. There is a character played by Robert Mitchum, who in that film has the letters love and hate tattooed on his fingers of both of his hands. Yeah. And he is also a reverend and a religious fanatic who is a serial killer. Okay. This is a very well-known reference because Spike Lee, famous director, also used this reference in his film Do the Right Thing, where he gave one character these name rings that spell out the words love and hate on his, on his fingers. And I think that this is the filmmakers knowing, hey, we know that this is a cool reference. We're going to leave in this tiny little reference that, hey, this guy has love and hate tattooed on his fingers because he is also a religious fanatic like Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter, who is a serial killer. Could you sum that one up for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a famous movie reference where someone has the word love and hate tattooed on his fingers, and he is a religious fanatic serial killer. In okay. this movie... John Voight, Mr. Sir, has at least the word love tattooed on one hand, and that is clearly a reference to the fact that he is a religious religious fanatic fanatic serial serial killer. killer. Okay. All right. (laughs) I guess it's true. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I like the attention to detail. I didn't notice the finger tattoos. As we were talking about when he says you don't have to worry about rattlesnakes so like uh, Stanley is looking at his gun and he says oh don't worry this gun is for lizards only Mm -hmm. meaning he doesn't shoot snakes just like in anaconda he wouldn't shoot a snake like he wouldn't even let other people shoot a snake I get that so you're supposed to think he's saying I won't shoot you Stanley Really, he's saying, I wouldn't shoot a snake. Are you crazy? I love snakes. Well, because right after that is when he talks about rattlesnakes. He's like, you don't bother them, they won't bother you. Usually, You're right. My favorite character was always Zigzag. Like, I think he is so cool. Yeah, he's crazy. And the actor is just so good Good at just being a total psycho. Like, like the very first thing is like, no, he killed the man before taking his shoes. Didn't you? (laughs) He just left that part out. (laughs) And then when... When he's later on, when they see Mr. Sir shooting one of the lizards, he goes up to Caveman and asks, What color was its blood? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I just love that everything. Every line Zigzag says, like, I feel like is just amazing. And the actor just does it so well. Like, I think if you gave it to another actor, like, it might sound like a normal line. Yeah. But no, like, it, with this guy saying it, he just sounds like such a crazy guy. <laughs> well, and I can, I can definitely confirm for you that the all of the kids at the camp are exactly the same as they were in the book. Like, they they give the exact same vibe in the book. And when I watched the movie, 
I was like, it's like the book came to life. Like they couldn't have cast them better. Everyone looks exactly how I imagined them, except for maybe Stanley could be a bit bigger. But I mean, I can't complain because Shia LaBeouf was the perfect actor to play him. So. Right, right. I think it's that night when after they come back, it's really late. Stanley's cleaning himself up and everyone else is like already in bed. And a yellow lizard charges him like this thing's going for blood. Like it wants to kill Stanley. Mr. Sir pops out and saves Stanley's life, much in the same way that he saved Gary from that boar. Yeah, man. <laughs> Do you Dude. think Mr. Sir put that <laughs> yellow spotted lizard there to gain Stanley's trust? <laughs> Maybe yeah. suck him into some cult? Maybe. <laughs> Could be. I think at this point in his life, Mr. Sir is kind of more or less done with that cult. But, you know, I wouldn't put it past him to use similar techniques to keep people in line and doing what he wants. You know, okay. you scare them and then you show them that you're your boss and you can kill the the, the bad things. After Caveman finds something and the warden actually, like he finds the little lipstick tube and the warden actually comes out, she says, fill their water. And Pandansky is like, I already did. And then she like gets, <laughs> she gets like up Dude, in his face. I love that scene. It's so good. Sigourney Weaver is obviously amazing. And, and so is everyone else in the movie. But she gets right up in his face. She's like, excuse me. Did I ask you when you last filled them? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just want to point this out that like the warden is a total badass, but also she knows that she's working with two people, Pandansky and Mr. Sir, who she knows are former criminals. Yeah. And she knows she cannot let them feel like they have power over anything. Absolutely, right? yes. So she does every chance she gets, she throws it in their face and keeps them in line. Uh-huh. Of course, that's true regardless of how you interpret no, that's it. Completely but I'm true. saying like, that's her like, character. <laughs> that's what she's doing. Sarone is an absolute psychopath, and the warden knows his history, and she knows she's got to keep him in line and keep him afraid of her. And same with Pandansky. Okay. Around this point, it's revealed she knows all of their nicknames and refers to them by their nicknames, which is pretty impressive. Uh, (laughs) Like, because she's never interacted with them. It's just great details. (laughs) And how the kids are all like, she has cameras everywhere in the showers. she must. And Christine wanted me to point out that I always thought it was weird that caveman is showering with shorts on. And Christine was like, it's because this is right after. Uh He knows the warden watches them in the shower. No, exactly. (laughs) And I wanted to point out that... I actually do think she has cameras in the showers because he looks up and examines the like the spigot, like the nozzle where the water comes out. And there's a bunch of wires up above it with a big box. right? <laughs> like there's no reason for wires to be up there where the water comes out. Like, that's, yeah. I mean, well, I guess I keep... you, you, you might say maybe that's like the shut off mechanism because it does shut off after a certain amount of time. It wouldn't be wired to the nozzle. Yeah. And, you know, it does seem kind of crazy that she would do this in a place that seems to be so low tech. I think that this is actually a little evidence for my theory, because if you were employing someone like Mr. Cerrone, wouldn't you want to keep an eye on him all the time? Do you think the (laughs) warden knows his history as Mr. Cerrone? I absolutely do think the warden knows his history. All right. We're not going to talk much about the amazing love story, Sam and, and Kate that gets flashed back to. Christine really loves it. It's her favorite love story in any movie. She thinks it's the most romantic thing ever. It's it's a good love story. I guess in the book she says, Sam, my heart is breaking. And he says, I can fix that. Mm -hmm. She never liked it that in the movie she actually doesn't say anything. She's just crying. And he walks up to her and says, I can fix that. Yeah. I think everyone's favorite line in the movie and the book was uh, when Mr. Sir, um, they're all hoping 
that the cloud will come closer and he's refilling their water bottles. And then he like sits them all down. And he's like, all right, all right, let me tell you a story. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a magical place where it never rained. The end. <laughs> and he just laughs. Yeah. And then in the background, you can hear someone muttering, I never get anything he says. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's so good. This is a really good, uh, good for my theory, too, because, hey, let's take a look at Mr. S- uh, Sir, Sirone. Sirone had a very traumatic event in a rainforest where it always rains. Yeah, and so you gotta get out of the rain. So he decided to reinvent his life. He went a to magical a magical place, place where it <laughs> where never it rains. rains. The end. <laughs> wow, I love it. I can totally buy it. <laughs> You're not reaching at all. So then he gets Stanley in trouble. He thinks Stanley stole the sunflower seeds. He drives Stanley back to the warden's house and stupidly is like, guess what Stanley found in his hole? Yeah, he gets Getting her, her hopes, hopes up. up. <laughs> she uh, paints her nails with rattlesnake nail polish and scratches him in the face. And I assume that this will have something to do with yeah. your theory. Yeah. Because from then Boy, on, he's boy. got giant yeah. rattlesnake inflicted <laughs> scratches on his face. So, yeah, I think that he kind of is powerless at this point. He used to be Mr. Sir, you know, schemer, cool guy. Now he's been completely humbled, totally powerless. He just wants to show off to the warden, wants her approval. And when he goes in there, he's just talking to her. He says, I don't miss much, as you well know. Punishment, reward. Every time they see me coming, a little shiver goes up their spine. And then he calls mm-hmm. them a snakey, a snakey little bunch. Little bunch. <laughs> well, for, for a guy who used to hunt snakes. Hmm. Uh, of course. <laughs> they think they're one step ahead of me, but I'm miles ahead of them. Well, this this clearly has to do with a guy who's scheming, who who thinks he's miles ahead of everyone else when his schemes are actually kind of, you know, not that smart. <laughs> After she scratches him, he's like, oh, I give you his respect and affection. Why'd you do that? <laughs> I think he's having flashbacks here to the time that he was attacked by his god, you know? Wow. <laughs> like, You're he kind of right. worships the warden. Like, she's his replacement yeah, warrior she's his snake. New snake. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Ooh, I love the this. warden knows his history. She's doing this specifically to hurt and punish him in the worst way possible. She knows he was traumatized by snakes, and now she is hurting him with snake venom. This is the worst thing that could happen to Mr. Sir, and it's the most effective way of her communicating to him, I am the one in charge, and don't bring some kid here getting my hopes up telling me he found something when you're just mad about your stupid sunflower seeds. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Mr. Sir, he had to have a lot of facial reconstructive surgery after what happened to him inside of that snake. So he's very sensitive about his face. And Mm -hmm. then he's got this big scar on his face and the kids are like, yeah, how dare she? You know, like noticing it and he pushes them and he's getting all mad saying something wrong with my face. I think I'm kind of purdy, don't you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that this is, you know, further evidence that like he cares a lot about his face because he got rid of all his scars once and now he's scarred again by a snake yes it's back (laughs) she gave it back to no consider my mind blown (laughs) (laughs) it's perfect i love it (laughs) (sighs) so i think at the end of this movie is where maybe some of your strongest evidence will come from this is when the the police show up and mr sir is like overtly hiding from them like very obviously hiding from them they arrest him they say his name is marion Sevillo, and it's been a long time since el paso marion they say he's in violation of parole for carrying a weapon 
and that he's under arrest. And then one of the kids says, I didn't know Marion was a man's name. And he says, it isn't. Right. Which is a little weird because Marion totally is a man's name. Yeah, I know. Like, I was like famous cowboy actor John Wayne. That wasn't his real name. His real name was Marion. Marion. <laughs> <laughs> By saying it ain't, obviously that's what everyone takes to be the confirmation that, you know, Mr. Sir was actually, you know, transgender, actually a woman at one point and as overcompensating by renaming himself Mr. Sir. Mm -hmm. I think this this cop knows him from like a long time back, like before he even got to uh, the Amazon. And he worked his way down there, I think. Like he changed his name. He was probably already a criminal. Changed his name to something Hispanic after going to El Paso because he's like, I know the language now. I can pretend, you know, you know, if I pretend that I'm from one of these countries like Paraguay or something, you know, as he's working his way down south, uh, then no one will ever find me kind of thing. But then, you know, after that traumatic experience with the snake, he had to come back. How long do you think his parole period was? <laughs> it's, a, it's a really long, dude. <laughs> okay, how long does parole last? In most cases, the parole, the length of parole depends upon the crime that was committed and the behavior of the criminal. Typically, parole will not last longer than five years. However, parole can last for the rest of a prisoner's life. Uh-huh. And so, he's really man, bad. Cerrone is really bad. He's I mean, pretty on. crazy. <laughs> Well, I think that it's an interesting theory. I think it's most interesting because it involves a couple of movies that I really like. Uh, I love Anaconda and I love Holes. Um, and I, I first read and saw them at around the same point in my life. So kind of tripped down memory lane for me. Now, I think the theory that the Anaconda is uh, some sort of demonic entity is like all but proven. Like that's uh, like the movie, right? Like yeah. it might as well have been like uh, definitely <laughs> there's, there's, there's no way around the fact that that Anaconda is not your average Anaconda. Something, something uh, supernatural is happening there. So I, I can buy that one. I think your theory that um, Mr. Sir is actually Sarone from Anaconda I think it's interesting and I think it has enough evidence to make you stop and think. I don't know if it's confirmed. <laughs> um, I don't yeah. I I think there's still some spots where you can dig a little deeper and say maybe it wasn't him <laughs> or probably oh, yeah, it yeah. wasn't him. For sure. But it's obviously. definitely fun to watch both movies and think that they're the same characters because yeah. they certainly could be. I mean, the <laughs> accent was obviously fake. Like this guy likes doing fake accent. He switched from one fake accent to another, to like another you know, fake cowboy fake accent. It's a it's a fun theory and I like it. I give it twenty five thousand worth of AT and T stock bought in nineteen oh five. Whoa. <laughs> Music for this episode was provided by Christine. Always remember to subscribe and leave reviews would be awesome for our podcast. Leave a review if you liked it because it will help other people to find the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Popcorn Isn't Real. And we're going to let Jack Epps Jr. play us out. The popcorn isn't real, but it sort of is real. So I don't know. I'm sort of confused about that, but I think it's a good title. All right, everybody, take care of yourselves. Be well. <laughs> And if you're a writer, just stay with it. Believe in yourself. It's going to work out.